Welcome to the Westside Investors Network. Win your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments or take any other action. And now, AJ and Chris Shepard. Hello, and welcome to the Westside Investors Network. This year, we're launching a new segment on the show, The Deal Deep Dive. These are mini episodes where our featured guests will share their unique stories on a specific deal they've participated in. We will go deep on all aspects of the deal, from finding it to making the offer, due diligence, and more. Do us a solid and smash that subscribe button, leave us a rating, and further your investing journey. All right, Scott, thank you so much for joining me today on the Deal Deep Dive from the Win Podcast. Scott, before we get going, you want to introduce yourself and tell us about your background. Well, first, Trent, thanks for having me. I really appreciate being here. The intro should be very brief, you know, that it's having, you know, <laughs> so it's, but a little bit about my background. I started in real estate, getting my master's in architecture. I was fortunate enough to be connected with a professor who actually owned a development company, an architectural firm, and a contracting company. So it was perfect for me because as a graduate student, I was approaching it as a job. And so he had 50 students in our class and he brought to us a 50 acre site and said, tonight, go home and come up with a thousand multifamily units for the site. And it was originally a Sara Lee factory. And so we were actually working on a real project right from the beginning. And mine was fortunate enough to be picked of all the 50 students. And my concept got implemented over the next six years. And so I worked on it for three years while in undergraduate, I mean, in, in my graduate program, and then also three years after I graduated, still working for him. So my day was getting in the office at seven o'clock, working for him until 12, then driving to class, being in class from one to six, and then I drive home and do homework from seven until midnight for him. So I learned a lot during that period of time. I wonder how many people can say that they designed their first deal while still being in school. Does that happen a lot? Did that happen at all in your program other than this one? No. Well, it happened in his class, but I wouldn't say it happened in the program. So I later on went on to teach at IIT where he, where I went, got my master's. And, you know, I've been fortunate enough to be involved with different universities and such. And there's this real tension. There's real struggle between the academic and the real world. And I don't think there's too many schools that really blend them. Another one that I think does a fantastic job is High Point University, which is where my second mentor is now the president. And they blend the two. So they have like Steve Wozniak coming in and teaching and Mark Randolph from Netflix, and they're working on real projects. And to me, that is like the best education because you're working on real things. And so when I was a TA, when I was a professor at IIT, there was always this tension that, you know, he was promoting things that were too real. You know, it didn't give students the creativity to explore and this and that. And sure, you can explore, you can do all those things, but you still have to recognize that if you're an architect and you're working on a drawing and it doesn't get built, then all you have is a drawing. You know, it's like it only becomes a building when it gets built. So if you can't build something, then it's just a drawing. So that's where my perspective was. And I was very fortunate to be in that situation. 
I think that's a great perspective to have because I know when I came out of school, I learned more in the first two years in the real world than I did in however many years I was in school prior to that. And being able to apply these real life skills and real life knowledge, I think goes way past the book work that you might learn. And obviously it's important, but unless you have, like you said, unless the building gets built, it's just knowledge in your brain at that point. So I think, Hey, that's a great point. Scott, I know we talked about creative financing a little bit for our deal today. You want to dive into it and tell us about the deal? Sure. We bought this 90,000 square foot building in Dayton, Ohio. It was completely empty. It had been empty for quite a while. And everyone was trying to make it into apartments. It just couldn't physically be built into apartments. With my background in multifamily, which is where I came from, the most important thing for a building, and most people, you know, scratch their head about this, and like, is it number of kitchens, number of bathrooms? It's really what's your structure and how does it lay out for parking stalls? It all comes down to parking. It's really exciting topic of, you know, parking. But when we were designing these buildings to accommodate, you know, 400 condominiums and townhomes and such, we always began with the foundation to accommodate as much parking as possible so that you could get everybody to have a parking space. And so this building in Dayton had an irregular structure, which was horrible for both traffic circulation as well as parking. So you just couldn't get the density and there was no site available for on-site parking. So no matter how many people wanted to convert the building into apartments, it just couldn't be done because you couldn't meet the zoning criteria. And so it was zoned for self-storage and we bought it. We bought it for a million dollars, which is far below replacement costs, which was one of the reasons why it was attractive to us. And we layered in a bunch of different things within the capital stack. So we had our normal investors, we had IRA investors, we had opportunity zone investors, and then we had PACE financing, and then we had our debt financing. So within that capital stack, we had five different layers within our total capital stack. Can you explain the difference between PACE financing and the traditional financing? Sure. So PACE financing is actually a program through a federal program. So we were dealing with multiple federal programs. The Opportunity Zones was a federal program through the Department of Treasury. And then we had the PACE financing, which was through the Department of Energy. So the Department of Energy said, hey, if we will allow this program to exist. But like the Opportunity Zones, it's going to be implemented at the state and local level. And so if any building has improvements in terms of energy performance, it will qualify for PACE financing. So since our building had no electricity, had no gas, and had it didn't even have windows. So you know, for us to improve the building in terms of the economic performance or making it more green, it was fairly easy for us to do that. I mean, we put on energy efficient roof, reflective roof. We put on energy efficient windows. We put in state-of-the-art mechanicals in terms of both MEPs and mechanical, electrical, and plumbing. And so we were able to do all these things, including the elevator. And we qualified for like a million dollars of PACE financing. So we had to prove that. And then once we did that, then the local economy says, yes, we will adopt this. And so what happens is that financing, that a million dollars, gets applied towards your property taxes as a special assessment. And as a result of that, what you're doing is it's not part of the traditional capital stack because it is a special assessment. It's a part of your property taxes. So it's above the line item. It's shown as equity versus debt, but it's financed over the lifespan of the improvement. So in this case, it was like 25 years. And so we could get low financing for that million dollars that was 
quote unquote equity versus debt. It's still structured like a debt, but it's considered an equity position versus debt. Thank you. So you said you found the deal for a million bucks, which was below replacement cost, like we talked about. It sounds like it was more of a shell of a building than an actual building at this point. What oh yeah, it was there was nothing in the building except for on the first floor. There were some like small offices and stuff that we demoed and but it was basically a concrete slab structure, concrete columns, and then it was a masonry exterior. And this was what blew my mind away. The insulation on the roof was about 30 inches of sand. So they had the concrete deck and then they had 30 inches of sand and then they had a membrane roof on top of that. I've n- we've never seen that before. I've never even heard of that. Is what I- <laughs> what attracted you to this shell of a building? Because it sounds like it was a curveball for a lot of people prior to you guys getting it. I mean, that's the beauty of self-storage. So there was multiple things that attracted us. One, we talked about replacement cost. Two, it was it met the size criteria. It was about 90,000 square feet. Three, it was zoned for self-storage. It was zoned for warehouse industrial. Five, it was in a great community where it was expanding. We were seeing like over a thousand rental units coming into the market within two miles of our building. And three, I'm mean, to what? I can't even count anymore, like six. The saturation level for self-storage was well below the market. So the normal market is seven square feet of lockers per capita. And this building was like at three. And so, you know, we could have plenty of demand for self-storage, even if we came and built, if there was 90,000, if we had like 60,000 square feet of lockers. And what year was this in? We brought this building online in 2021. We just brought it online last year. Okay. Okay. In fact, it was our first one-stop self-storage location. Can you, and I'm sure you've researched it plenty. Can you talk more about self-storage? Because I know it's a big investment craze right now in the commercial real estate world. Do you think that that will ever get oversaturated? Because I know in my local market, there's self-storage or there was self-storage popping up everywhere. In Dayton, I know you said it was below per capita square footage. Did you ever have concerns of going through with self-storage? Well, it's a great question because ultimately everything becomes oversaturated, right? So it's a matter of not if, but when. It's like, I love people who say, well, if I die. You know, well, there's a couple of things that we're assured of in life, like one, being born, two, we need food, and three, we will die, right? I mean, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So the market for self-storage is three to five miles. That's it. And so, for instance, when we were looking at locations in Milwaukee, one was way oversaturated. And then we drove 20 minutes and it was way undersaturated. So even within a city, you can have both. So it's a matter of that three to five mile radius. And so that's a general speaking. Like if you're out in the country, it's like a 20 minute drive. What are people willing to drive? It's 20 minutes for self-storage. So if you're like in New York City, that's like what? About a half a block. And if you're out in the country and you can go like 80, you know, down to the post office, then it's like 20 miles, right? So it really just depends in terms of what your 20 mile radius is in terms of driving. And so, yes, we do look at that. But one of the couple things that eases our concerns is a lot of municipalities are actually against self-storage. They don't recognize what a benefit it is both on the residential and the commercial side to businesses. So they're restricting the zoning of it. So zoning is one of the biggest natural barriers to entry that protects our investments. Why would a local municipality be so against it? Well, Dayton was. They were totally against it. And they tried holding up our PACE financing because of it, because it's quote unquote, a dark building. If you look at a normal retail, you're going to have to have you know, look at a mall. 
look how many parking spaces you need just to accommodate people coming and going, right? The average traffic flow through a self-storage facility is like four cars per day. So it's considered dark because you're not having all this traffic. You're not generating sales tax. And so what they try to do is they said, we're not going to allow your pace financing because the local government has to allow it to be put on the property taxes. And they said, we're withholding it. And I said, you can't do that. It's a federal program. I'm not getting my financing through Dayton. I'm getting it privately, but it's through this program. And they said, well, we want retail. And I said, what do you want? They said, we want a coffee shop. And I said, okay, well, you know, took out my paper. I'm like, coffee shop is typically 1,200 square feet. I'll give you the prime corner of my building on the first floor. But it has to rent for $15 a square foot, triple net lease. And I will market it for a year. And if it doesn't lease up in a year, then I'm going to convert it back over to self-storage. And they said, we'll agree to that, but you need to be at $4 a square foot. I'm like, if it's so much in demand, why do I have to discount it by $11 a square foot? That doesn't make any sense. I will agree to drop it to 12. And they said, fine, we'll do it. But it has to be 18 months. So we listed it and we got one phone call. And I told my broker, I said, do not negotiate. Just list it right at $12 because that the way they can't say that I was trying to negotiate too hard or anything. It was $12 a square foot. And we got one phone call during that period of time because no one else, no retail could compete at $12 a square foot. And I was like, so why should I be discounting it if it's in such demand, if the market's not there? And so we're now converting that prime corner into self-storage. So the building is 100% self-storage, no other retail or other commercial space other than probably an office? Yeah, we have an office. We have a retail office on the first floor. Okay. And how long do you anticipate, or let me backtrack for a second. Are you still building it out? No, it's built out. And so we're all self-storage there. And then how long do you anticipate for it to be fully occupied if it's not already? So lease up is exactly like similar to a multifamily. It's, you know, the national average is 3% per month, but we projected two and a half years to lease this up. Okay. And then what's the hold time that you forecasted originally? We said three to five years is our hold. Then you sell after that or refinance into different financing? Both. We can refinance it or we can sell. So what we're, our global perspective is that we're building this portfolio of 10 different self-storage assets across the Midwest area. And we're looking to either sell them individually or as a package to a mid-level REIT. So that's our larger scale exit plan. Okay. And now here's a word from our sponsor. Get things done while you're on the move. Learn more about working with a virtual assistant through offsite professionals. It's a great way to get all the things done that you need to get done. Have freedom in your time and streamline your life by automating your business. Stop spending time on the tasks that you can delegate and start spending more time on your superpower. Call us today at 503-446-3177 or visit our website at offsiteprofessionals.com. With the current economic climate, has that adjusted any of your numbers from when you initially underwrote the deal? No. I mean, we've been planning for this 100%. When I was first getting into self-storage, I went back and studied how self-storage did in various recessions. And I went back to 1979. And so I looked at the four major recessions. So we had 79 oil, then we had internet, and then we had housing. And then 9-11 was in there as well. So it was what? Internet, 9-11, housing. And then we sort of had it during the pandemic. In every case, self-storage increased its occupancy. 
there was a slight dip and then an acceleration. And so some people have deemed self-storage recessionary proof. I don't think there's anything proven or proof in real estate. I think it's an ebbs and flow of the market. We already talked about that a little bit. So I deemed it recessionary resistant. It is the most recessionary resistant platform that I've seen in all of real estate. And that's the reason why we're in it. Do you have any theories on why that is? Yeah, it's because ultimately self-storage is the only form of real estate that deals with a problem. Okay. Housing, you know, you sure the problem is we need some place to live, right? But it can be a good thing. It doesn't have to be a negative thing. Self-storage addresses negative things in people's lives. If you think of like commercial or if you think of retail, people are going and spending more because they want to enhance their life or something like that. But self-storage is inherently dealing with a challenge. And those challenges tend to get magnified during recessionary periods of time. There's certain challenges that are not impacted by the economy, but then there's certain challenges that get enhanced by it. So for instance, if you're getting you know, evicted or you can't pay your mortgage or whatever it may be, and you have to leave, people don't want to give up their stuff. So they put it into self-storage because it's a more economical version. If they are having to move because they can't afford someplace else and they're trying to you know, overcome that, same thing. If we look at the pandemic, People were now using their homes for gyms. They were using it for classrooms. They were working for home offices. They were doing all these things and they needed more space. So they had to expand. And the only way they could do that was to offload some stuff into self-storage. But also businesses. Look at all the challenges that businesses have gone through during the last couple of years with supply chain and trying to make sure that they had enough inventory to support their businesses. So what they do, they're putting stuff into self-storage in order to service their business. So 50% of our customers our businesses and 50% are residents. That's kind of where I thought that question would go. Cause you're, like you said, you're dealing with a challenge. You're providing a relief for someone that is going through maybe some difficult times. Do you see any of your, I mean, I'm assuming they're called tenants, right? Tenants. We call them clients. Clients. Do you see any of your clients running e-commerce businesses or businesses and kind of using those lockers as warehouse space? Absolutely. That's 50% of our customers are definitely doing that. Okay. So, was, so we have everything from contractors to the e-commerce. Absolutely. That's always been something I've been curious about because we had my wife and I had a storage unit when we were moving into this place. And I would see similar people whenever we were moving in and out, making multiple trips. And I'm like, ah, oh, I wonder if they're they're using this as a warehouse or if they're moving too, because it didn't seem like they were loading up everything at one time and getting out of there. When the it best comes, thing I just recently saw was a guy I can relate to this because he clearly lives in a small apartment or something like that, but he walks in and then he walks out with his hockey bag. I'm like, I said to my wife, I go, he clearly, his wife was, her girlfriend was not allowing him to have the stinky hockey bag in the apartment anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a closet for some people. Even. It's a closet, right? <laughs> That's a challenge, right? What do I do with a stinky hockey bag? <laughs> when it comes to implementing the operational side of a self-storage facility, do you have your own team that goes in and gets it up and running? Do you hire people locally to those markets? How does the operations get going for a place like this? Well, originally we hired a third-party management company, one of the national REITs, and that turned out to be not so good of a decision. And so we created our own branding and our Dayton was our first store under our own brand. And that's one-stop self-storage. And so just this month, beginning of October, we converted our last store off that national brand to ours. And we're still, you know, in that first transitionary month, but, you know, we're very excited about one-stop self-storage. Yeah. I mean, it's 
you're kind of doing like a vertical integration at that point, right? Absolutely. So now we're developers, we're designed, we're build, and now we're doing management. Very cool. I've never really analyzed the self-storage deal before. Most of my stuff is multifamily that I'm looking at. How do cap rates compare or what are cap rates like when it comes to self-storage? I know there's probably less expenses if I had to guess, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, it's funny. That's a common response that I get from people. Like, I totally get multifamily, but I just don't get self-storage. The way I, you know, I try to describe it to people is we're all in real estate, right? So I worked on $14 million homes. I worked on $100 million projects and I worked on $100,000 townhomes and, you know, apartment buildings that rented or units that rented for, you know, five, $600 a month. And then we have self-storage that rents for 50, 75, $100 a month. The common reality is we're just dealing with a box, right? The $14 million home had an elevator and had seven car garage and a pool and all this sort of this. And a self-storage locker is just the most simplistic version of a box, right? So we're dealing with a box. It's just what goes in the box. So the way I describe it is apartments without toilets. You know, we don't have the tenant issues of someone coming home late on a Friday night after having a really great time and maybe clogging or damaging the toilet and it overflows and it goes into the, you know, the tenant down below them and all that sort of stuff. So it's just a much more simplistic version. So instead of being expense ratio of 55% for a multifamily, we're within 25 to 35%. So some of our facilities aren't even manned. You know, I shouldn't say manned. We don't have any personnel there. So they're fully 100% online operated. So we do have people that go and, you know, clean them up, make sure that they look good. You know, we call them the beautification people. And so that, you know, they're the landscapers or the maintenance people that go and take care of the things, but we don't have any sales staff. It's all done online. And so in that sense, our expense ratio is far less. So our biggest two line items typically are real estate taxes and personnel. So our larger facilities, our class A facilities have people there, one and a half to two people per week there. But that's our biggest expense. So after that's utilities. So it's a lot easier to manage. Our repair and maintenance is fractional the difference. But the cap rates, depending on if you're class C, class B, or class A. And class C is just more rural, first generation self-storage. Class B is more suburban. Class A is urban, 100% drive-in, climate controlled, those sorts of things. So we're seeing cap rates when I first got into this, cap rates would be anywhere from 10 to maybe eight. Now we're seeing, you know, six down to three and a half. So it's becoming more attractive and people are seeing that how well they do in recessions. Right now, they're trading at ridiculously low cap rates. I haven't been in multifamily as long as other people I've talked with, but that's kind of what I'm getting from the multifamily space too, is cap rates are squeezing. And now we're in this kind of limbo period where cap rates are starting to increase a little bit. Do you think there's going to be any opportunity like that or knowing that people think self-storage is recession proof or recession resistant? Do you think people are going to place their money in self-storage rather than multifamily at this point? Oh, we're already seeing it. Like, you know, Blackstone invested over a billion dollars, extra space invested over a billion dollars. Warren Buffett's in it. Bill Gates is in it. So we're seeing the big money coming in. The difference is I thought we were at the height of the multifamily market in 2018. And I sold off my portfolio at that point in time of multifamily. And it's only gotten more cap compressed. And I was just having this conversation online with a person who was wanting to develop multifamily in this marketplace. And I said, the challenge with it is inherently, if your cap rate is at 3%, where's it going to go? Because your interest rates are higher than your cap rates right now. So you have that invert in the yield, which makes it much more difficult and much more risky 
an investment when that happens. So when we model things, we're not modeling it at the three cap. We're not modeling it at that low of cap rate. We're still modeling it you know, in the six and sevens to make sure that we're not getting in position where we're getting upside down inverted with the cap rate in the interest rates. That makes sense. I actually just heard that for the first time too. We're getting that invert in interest rate to cap rate right now. That was kind of the limbo period I was talking about where your interest rates at five and a half, six percent, and all of a sudden you're still seeing multifamily get listed at a four cap, which I don't know if it's even possible to get that to pencil unless you're putting a lot of money down up front. You have to, but you have to also say, well, what's my long-term goal on this? Historically, you would see that because it would be like pension funds where they just need to place their cash. So it'd be big, huge institutional investors coming in because they needed a yield on their investment in order to you know, keep up with inflation, right? To outpace inflation. And so like my cousin was one of those investors or is one of those investors. He runs it for a huge Mason union and other unions and stuff like that. And they'd be buying buildings all cash because you can't, with the spread on that, if you're paying on the interest, you're getting killed, you're getting crushed. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, I think we'll probably start seeing that now, you know, where people are going to start buying cash and maybe refinancing down the road. But at this point, it seems like borrowing money is not going to pencil as well as it did two, three years ago. And that's the whole benefit of why you you have debt, right? If money is cheap, this was the problem in 79. And it was interesting because I gave a speech in March in Vegas when I was presented with an award for a lifetime of work, which I don't know what the criteria was for evaluating that. I'm just putting that out there. I just accepted it. I didn't question it. But I went back and compared 1979 to where we are right now. And the similarities were eerie. Okay. I mean, and I mean, like Russia invades. It was Afghanistan, Ukraine. We looked at Take a guess on this one. Guess where gas prices were adjusted to current market prices for gas in 1979? Give me a dollar amount. 550. 235. And here in Chicago, we're paying like $6 a gallon. Okay. So then we looked at housing starts, exactly the same. We looked at unemployment, very similar. We looked at GPI. I mean, all those things. We went through like nine different criteria. The most telling was what the U.S. Olympic hockey team did. So in 1979, 90 to 80, they won the gold medal, but we only did quarterfinals this year. So, you know, that's where the whole analysis got thrown out the window. But if we look back and compare those two, it's eerily similar in terms of what was happening in 1979 to what's happening right now. And I'm sitting up there saying, hey, we're in the forefront of a recession. And everyone's like, ah, you know, the question's like, well, where were you coming up with this stuff? And I'm like, look at the data. So what was happening in 1979 is real estate was not trading because of the value of the property. It was trading based upon the value of the mortgage. So people were assigning their mortgages and people were buying houses based upon the mortgage that came with the house where they could assign it because the interest rates were going so high. And so people couldn't pencil out what was happening with the housing prices. So what became more valuable was the mortgages. You're in the commercial world. I don't know how much you're paying attention to the residential and small commercial, but I just had someone for the first time tell me about that. They're marketing the property at you know 950000 but the kicker is that the seller needs to assign his 4% interest rate mortgage, which is a 7-1 arm or something like that. But it's still variable, but it's at a 4 until 2027. And so that's the value in the project's okay, but it doesn't... It's not a home run by any means, but the home run is the 4% loan that's on it. 
Yeah. And are you willing to take a gamble for the next four years, right? I might take that bet because again, I look at history, right? That was my undergraduate was history degree. And so, and I said this going into the last election. So please don't hear me as being one party or the other. It's just strictly the facts. Every, since the 1980, when Carter only had one term, why do you have one term? Because everything was way out of whack. Fuel was out of whack, you know, hostages, everything. It was just a horrible situation, right? And 49 out of 50 states voted for Reagan. And we gave Reagan eight years, then we gave Bush eight years, and then it flipped. And then we went to Clinton, then we went to Bush, then we went to Obama. Everyone was given eight years until I said, you know, people were asking me to predict what was going to happen in the election. And I said, you know, first I said, if the Republicans don't win the next election, it's their fault because every eight years it's switching. But if Trump does not repeat, it's because of the economy, you know, something else that is really whacking it because people vote on the economy. And sure enough, you know, the pandemic hit and the economy started to suffer. And, you know, and he granted he did not do well with Twitter and all these other things. And he gave people a reason. They voted him out. But mark my words, if this economy does not turn, I mean, we're in the midterm elections right now. I'm predicting, you know, before the midterms, I've already voted, but I think that the, you know, the Congress and the House, you know, Congress is going to go back to the other side. And I think unless things turn around, Biden will be out and then we're going to see a change in the economy. But right now, based upon the fiscal policies that have been implemented, the only thing that the Fed can do is raise interest rates. So your question was, do I pay attention to residential? 100%. Because housing starts is one of the major construction and housing starts is one of the major components of our economy. When Biden was attacking investing with IRAs or 1031s or opportunity zones, which was really funny because that really came from the Obama administration, it's like you are attacking one of the major capstones of our economy. So what's the natural reaction if people are not building, if people are not buying, the economy is going to go down. And so the only thing that the Fed can do right now is raise interest rates. And it seems like there's going to be at least another year or two of that happening. And I did see something today. During recessions, the first kind of fiscal policy changes, they decrease interest rates. Well, they've been doing that for the last however, you know, they've been basically zero. Are you going to see someone increase interest rates for a year and then immediately start dropping them again? What was fortunate was, you know, the inflationary because there was so much. The difference is you're absolutely right. In a recessionary market, the natural thing is how do we get spending going? We drop interest rates. Mm -hmm. But the problem was we, have, we were flooding the economy with so much currency that the fiscal policy was the monetary policy and the fiscal policy were not aligning because we're putting pumping so much cash into it. The people were still spending, which is just going raising inflation. So I just read recently a great article. I mean, everyone's like, it's labor. I'm like, there's no way that labor is driving this because it's not like people, if people were making that much more money, then they wouldn't be complaining about what they're paying at the pumps or in the, in the grocery stores. Mm -hmm. Labor only count for 8% of it. It was corporations are trying to recoup what they lost in the pandemic. And so what's really driving this is trying to, you know, make back more money. So as a result of that, the only thing that they can do is raise the interest rates. Well, if you raise the interest rate, it's going to slow down the economy. So once the economy begins to slow down, then I think you're going to begin seeing the interest rates drop back again because they're going to need to kickstart the economy again. And that's why I think that's why I'm predicting a change because if they don't change the monetary and fiscal policies. It's only going to lead to more problems. You know, this is one I really didn't understand. The way we're going to solve inflation is we're going to have a package to give people more money, which is printing more money, which is causing more inflation. I was like, this is a circular argument, right? We got to stop the spending. 
in order to control, you know, the inflation. Some people might refer to that as a catch 22. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Scott, since we are talking interest rates and details on policies and how you're analyzing certain aspects of the economy, when it came to getting this deal under contract, I know we talked about the different layers of the capital stack. Was there any certain details that you think got you this deal or got your company this deal against someone else? Did you structure the deal a certain way? What kind of terms were involved with getting it under contract and closed? Well, we had to close very quickly. We were given 60 days. So we closed with cash and then we financed it on the backside and then got the construction. But the reason why we got the deal at the price we did was one, we could close quickly with cash. And two, we didn't have to do entitlements. You know, we didn't have to go through that whole process because it was already zoned for that. So that lent itself very much right for us to go into it. So there was less risk. And so we could put, you know, we could say, hey, here's a top line. If we don't bite at this, then it doesn't make sense. We're not moving forward. And so they took it. And so you were able to, going back to the pace financing and opportunities, you know, all that stuff was after you'd already acquired it. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. it, that's what actually held up our construction a little bit because the city was withholding our pace financing. They withheld it for two months. And, you know, I had to fly out to Dayton and meet with the mayor and the mayor's chief executive officer and, you know, negotiate this. So it's, it was constant negotiation, even once we had begun. And it all seems like it's worked out now, which is good. Yeah. What do you see going forward? Do you have any other plans, any other properties or projects that you're working on right now? Yeah, we're actually working on a conversion in Cleveland. We're working on a new construction and an expansion in Michigan. And we're also developing 144,000 square feet in Louisville, Kentucky right now. And we're under construction as well as in Virginia. And we just completed in Maine and we're preparing plans in Florida. So you might hit your 10 sooner than later then. That's the goal. (laughs) One last question for you, just because you mentioned another Ohio city. Have you looked at Columbus at all? Yeah. That's my first question. Yep. It's way saturated. We couldn't find a spot that didn't have the saturation. I was curious because we have Intel out here in Oregon and they just put like $50 billion or something crazy into Columbus because they're building something huge out there. Yeah. Columbus has been exploding for a long time. And you know, the wholesalers are like, oh, this is how you make a career. And I'm like, the wholesaling is only because of the influx in that market. It's not a consistent, it's not something you're going to see for a long period of time, but it's been growing quite steadily for a long period of time. Okay. I lied. I have one more question. Okay. So why do you focus in the regions that you focus, Midwest, Southeast? Is there any particular reason that you focus in that area? Higher probability of success. If you look historically at the East Coast, Florida, Texas, all those different locations, you know, originally the market saturation was seven and like New York City was nine. Now we're seeing building new construction where it's 13. You know, it's like way double what the market is. And that for me is way too much risk. So we're looking at what's considered like the flyover states where we know that there's going to be market demand where there's growth, but we're not, we don't have the competition. So you know, again, I just study the markets. I studied history and I'm like, I've seen what happens when people are massively building in an overstimulated economy in terms of like housing. Like when we were doing housing, you know, people were, you know, I was in a market where we're, you know, I paid a million and a half to buy a house, to tear it down, to build a three and a half million dollar home. Okay. And 
people were paying $50,000, $100,000 over asking price. And the asking price was just asking astronomical. And at the same point in time, I'm hearing the Fed talk about a housing bubble burst. And you know, people were loading up on 10 properties just to have the pipeline. And I'm like, I stopped buying. And I sold. And I was chastised because I sold too low. And I'm like, look, I'm out. And then you know, two months later, the housing market crashed. And people were sitting on 10, 20 properties that they bought, were, which were teardown conditions, which they couldn't sell it or even rent it. And that's why, you know, a lot of why those banks went under because they were just lending on deals that were, you know, well out over their skis. And that is a perfect explanation. That's kind of what I was thinking. And being from Oregon, I'd luckily I have family in the Midwest, but those are markets that, you know, our partnership is starting to really examine and dive deep into because here is tough right now. It's oversaturated. There's a lot of people here and prices are high. And I think we'd have a lot better chance or increase our success rate if we were able to look in in other markets like the Midwest, the Southeast, those areas. Absolutely. We, we bought this building in Milwaukee. It was 102,000 square feet. We did historic tax credits. It's a whole different capital stack on that one. But it was $1.7 million. We had investors from San Francisco came out and they're like, this is a one bedroom condo. <laughs> $1.7 million is a one bedroom condo. You're buying 100,000 square feet. I'm like, just think how great a deal that is. <laughs> Yeah. Your money goes a lot further. Exactly. That's awesome. Is there anything else you'd like to say today, Scott? Well, if anybody is interested, and we appreciate you having us on this interview, feel free to reach out to us. And what we'd like to do is if anyone mentions this show, we will give them two free gifts. One is a feasibility study, one that we did for our project in Dayton. And we hire consultants to assess the area, assess the market, and then they do a report for us. It's about 175 pages. And the reason why it's good is it doesn't just talk about that market, but it talks about self-stores as a whole. And so we will give that to anybody who emails us. And we'll also give them a deal analyzer. So that way you can compare multifamily or single family compared to self-storage and see what the assumptions are there that we do that. So if anybody emails us, we're happy to give those two free gifts. Awesome. And what's the email? It's info at coda, C-O-D-A-M-G.com. That's info at codamg.com. And we'll make sure we link that in the description and show notes as well. Scott, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining me and it was a great conversation. I know I learned plenty about self-storage and I'm sure other people will too. Thanks for having me, Trent. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would, please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.